guys can be dismissed then for junior church. Okay? I want us to take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to be doing part two of the discussion that we began last Sunday morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Focusing our attention on verse 13. I would encourage you, if you have not memorized this verse, uh, to commit this text to memory. This is what the Lord says, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. No temptation has seized you or come upon you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted... He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. A wonderful promise that every believer needs to remember and that every believer needs to claim. John Piper kind of summarizes this thought of spiritual wrestling with temptation by saying this. He says, it is a relief and a great heartache to know that all true believers have sin remaining in them in this life. It is a relief in the sense that when I'm wrestling with sin, one of the questions banging around in my mind is, does anybody else wrestle with what I wrestle with? Is anybody experiencing the same conflict internally that I'm experiencing as I strive to live a life for the glory of God? Is that wrestling common or is it unique in my sphere of influence, in my situation? Words from Scripture help to comfort us in regards to answering that question. The Apostle Paul says, not that I have already obtained or become perfect. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, I am a fellow believer who is on the way towards the glory of God in perfection that is found in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 7, verse 22. He says, I delight in God's law, but I see another battle in my flesh. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, if you're wondering if your situation, this struggle that you have with striving to live for righteousness, and you're finding that it is work, you're finding that your progress at times is slow, is anemic, weak. Paul's saying, hey, hey, listen, listen. You're not alone. I, I am called by God, Paul's saying, to be an apostle, a leader in the church. But he's saying, please do not think that by virtue of that calling and that position, that I am somewhere out ahead of you in the spiritual life. What you're wrestling with, Paul's saying, I wrestle with that. This question came to my mind starting last week as I was studying through this passage that indicates strongly that success in the Christian life is possible. This question came to mind. I was talking with Roger Schmiel on the phone who really has a strong ministry to people that in our culture get labeled as addicts. I asked this question, are addictions or are addicts a special group of people Or are they a normal group of people? Are they typical Christians fighting along the way to find the glory of God and the freedom that God provides? Romans 6 says this, it says, whatever you yield yourself to, you become a servant to obey. And I believe that is the biblical category for what we in our culture call addiction. It is enslavement to 
something in my life. In our culture, we've tended to narrow it down to drugs and alcohol and pornography. People that wrestle with those things are addicts. And I think we should beg to differ with that definition. I think we should say that anybody who has yielded to any temptation on a somewhat regular basis can be categorized as someone who is wrestling to break free from the slavery of sin to whatever it is apart from finding full satisfaction in God. That this category called addiction and fighting to get out from under that addiction should be what describes normative Christian living. Fighting natural tendencies to drift away from God and to find freedom that is found in and through the precious blood of Christ. Can we say that all of us are potentially able to fall into a category of slavery? Not just to classic substances, but perhaps to something like this. Food. You know, it's amazing how we can judge someone who struggles with alcohol, but the person who struggles with food, we have a deafening silence. Maybe it's an addiction, and, and I wrestle with that issue. Okay, I am an overeater. I try to work real hard to exercise to keep my weight under control. But I, there are many times, I get done a night where I'm at someone's house where it's been a lot of fun and a lot of food, and I'm thinking, okay, because my weight right now is under 200 pounds, am I therefore free from abusing food? Most people that watch me eat don't think I'm free. <laughs> they say, you eat a lot. I think what they mean, they're just being tactful, you eat too much. And they're probably right. An addiction to leisure, the need to kind of break free and to, to get away because I can't cope with life apart from that. Folks, is that any different than what someone slips into addiction to alcohol is doing? Is it any different? An addiction to sleep or anger, respectable sins like anxiety, a pervasive discontentment, pride, Selfishness, ingratitude, impatience, irritability, jealousy, sins of the tongue, judgmentalism. Is it possible that any one of those areas may describe a prevailing tendency or pattern in my life? But I'm not wrestling with slavery, right? That's what we say. And I think we should argue that Paul understands that all of us are going to wrestle with these overwhelming patterns and tendency. And the question that we addressed last week, is failure in my area of struggle? Without trying to categorize things as addicts and non-addicts, which I think is a false compartmentalization. No, we all struggle with areas of sin in our lives. Some of them are, as one writer has recently said, respectable sins. Sin the church won't point their finger at you if you commit it. But then there's certainly the list of things that we are quick to point to because they're easy targets. And I think we need to go before God and say, God, am I, have I got it wrong about the essence of Christian living? Have I come to grips with the fact that I am potentially enslaved to some attitude in my life that is leading to failure and falling to temptation? Paul gives or I think the Word of God addresses three views of the Christian life. I gave these to you last week. Perfectionism, which is an unrealistic optimism that I can somehow in this life be free from the tendency to sin. Not so. Unjustifiable pessimism. I can't get it right. I can't help it. Therefore, why try? And then I think the biblical response is this. Every Christian's life should be characterized by a progressive 
and brightening optimism that if I walk in the Spirit, the, the desires of the flesh will be mortified or put to death. And when they are mortified, a believer is set free to live the life of obedience that God has called us to live. Folks, that does not come easy. That does not come easy. If you're striving for, for, for perfection, stop. Stop. You're going to need the grace of God and the blood of Christ that was shed to pay your sin till the day you die. Don't strive for perfection. And don't throw in the towel saying that the Spirit of God is unable to change me. He can. But He can't do it through your efforts. He can do it through His Spirit as you surrender and say, God, that is a battle that I can't win. Help me. The text that we closed with last week is He is able to come to the aid of those who are hurting and struggling. He is able to pump into your deflated life a, a, a helium of optimism, if you will, that will lift your spirits and cause you to realize that God and I together can live this life. That failure need not be inevitable. But that I can begin to make progress. And, and understand, as Chuck, uh, Chuck Swindoll put it years ago, he said in the Christian life, and this process of seeking to become like Jesus, we had this tendency we have this tendency to take two steps forward and then what to take one step backward and when we take the step backward what do we think i'm a total failure i'm back to ground zero no you took how many steps forward you took two steps forward and then you had a setback are you where you were at the beginning the answer is no and if i take three more steps further and have two steps backwards am i where i was no i'm not what i used to be and what is Paul saying? Look, you're going to have this need for the grace of God and for the blood of Christ to forgive you when you confess your sin and you're never free from it totally. But that doesn't mean that you should adopt the perspective that the Christian life is impossible, therefore I'm not going to try. That is a God-denying and a God-belittling perspective. Paul says, no, the Spirit of God has come alongside so that you are not what you used to be and you can't take credit for where you are because you know your tendency. What is it? It's in my flesh, this is my tendency. And in the Spirit, if we walk in the Spirit, He says, you will overcome, you will have victory over the lust and desires of the flesh. Folks, my desire in dealing with this text is to breathe hope into our Christian lives. Many of us are deflated by the pervasive tendencies that we face in our lives. And we buy into Satan's lies. Why try? Because you're not able. My response is this. You know what, Satan? I'm not able. I can't do this in my own strength. But I believe if I walk in the Spirit that I will no longer fulfill your wishes and your desires that appeal to my flesh. Folks, we have the ability to experience victory over sin. The trials that Paul talks about in this verse are, are, are described by three words that I'm using that start with the letter C. They are common to man. That is, every person in this room this morning has an area of sin that they wrestle with it. And I'm going to guess that it's probably in the list that I already read to you. I'm going to guess that every person in this room wrestles in one of those areas. Some admit it and know it. And some live in denial. Because the church doesn't tend to call those things sin. Get a clear vision of your life. Look clearly into the mirror and realize that all of us wrestle. These temptations, these struggles are common to the Christian experience. The, the, the last sentence of this verse starts with a, I think it's a presupposition. But when you are tempted. Okay, you know what I think that assumes? 
I think that assumes that this verse actually is written for real people. I think Paul is assuming that as he writes this verse under the inspiration of Scripture, that Christians will actually struggle with overcoming temptation. But when you are tempted, assumes what? That I will experience resistance as I strive to move in the direction of Christ-likeness and righteousness. It will not be an unopposed life. If I begin to say, you know what, I am going to change the direction of my life by the power of the Spirit of God, and we're instead of going here, we're going to start going here. That When you make that decision, you can count on this, you will face opposition. Two very dear friends of mine, one a year ago, and one about three months ago, trusted Christ. And you know what happened in their life? It got harder. It got harder. They said, Pastor Tim, what's going on with that? <laughs> Come to Christ, now trying to live to please God in life is harder. Okay, why? Because I don't live in a world that is friendly to my desire to move towards becoming like Christ. I live in a world that stands in opposition. I live in a body that stands in opposition to what God wants. Bound up in this flesh, Paul says, is no good thing. So, because of that, I'm going to face, as common to all, certain kinds of struggles. Trials are common to man. They are controlled by God. That is, He will not let you be pushed beyond your limit. That's what the middle of this verse is saying. God is faithful. He is reliable. You can count on Him. He will not let you be pushed beyond what you can bear or beyond the limit of what you're able to handle. He knows that. You and I are tempted to think that God doesn't know how hard we have it. We're tempted to question, to doubt Him in terms of the kinds of things that He lets come into our lives. But He is the all-knowing God who knows you exhaustively and completely. He made you and He manages and modifies your experiences of trouble so that by the power of His Spirit, you can overcome. So they are controlled by God. Last thought is this, and this is one I want to unpack this morning. Trials, temptations are, in the Christian life, conquerable. But they are conquered under certain conditions. Okay, they're conquered under certain conditions. There are certain things that I must do in order to experience the all-conquering power of Christ over sin in my life. And I want to give you this morning a couple of thoughts about this conquering. Notice what he says at the end of verse 13. But you, when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out. Some translations say a way of escape so that you can stand up under it, so that you don't have to collapse under the pressure of the trial that you're facing. The word is ekbasis. Ek means out. Basis means way. Okay, in the original language. God will, in the midst of your trial, point to a way out of it so that you do not have to fall prey to sin in the test that you were facing. Okay, and I don't know if I mentioned this last Sunday morning, but in the original language, the, the word is, it's a word picture of an army that is surrounded in a valley. And finally, someone says, look, there. And they see a way out, not a way that they can simply survive. Squeak out of it. But a way that they can succeed and live to fight again. Folks, in every test you face, God has, in His sovereign will and plan, allowed you to go into that test. And he wants you to find the way out. He wants to provide for you a way out so that you can say, God allowed me to go through that circumstance. And by his grace, he made a way for me to move through that circumstance without failing. God will make a way. Therefore, 
the temptations that I face don't inevitably lead to sin. They are, in the power of God, conquerable. These simple truths then emerge. Conquering then is a cooperative effort. Okay, conquering is a cooperative effort. I don't conquer sin in my own strength. Okay, God makes a way out and we cooperate with Him by choosing to take the path that He has provided. He doesn't pre-program us as robots. He points a direction and a way that we can move in to experience success in the time of temptation. You say to me, Tim, how does God do that? I think He does it in the same way that He did it for Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 11. After the temptation, the Bible says that Father sent angels to minister to Him. Hebrews 1.14 Are they not all ministering spirits who are sent forth to minister to those who are heirs of the salvation that Christ provides for us? Understand that God sends angelic assistance. I know everybody's like, oh, that's kind of weird. No, that's what the Bible says. Hebrews 1.14 says they are ministering spirits sent forth to minister, to serve, to protect, to enable, to strengthen those who are heirs of salvation. So if you ever have a weird circumstance in your life where you're like, that was very helpful and odd. Okay? Helpful and like, in retrospect, you think that was, that was weird. I had that happen in India one time where we were, Randy Cole and I, stupid, that's me, not Randy Cole. We're going to go out and walk around the streets of uh, a city called Bihar, or uh, Patna, a city of 4 million people, no police force, recognizable, at night, 10 o'clock. We start walking out. We're going through the uh, parking lot of the hotel. It's a, com- it's a compound. Cement walls 12 feet high. We're just thinking, oh, they're neat walls. Oh, they're there for a reason. Going outside of them is not safe. We, start- we got outside of the gate, I- 20 feet and we're confronted by a man who spoke perfectly clear English. Perfectly clear English. You need to go back inside. We just about faced. We understand that. We get inside. I said to Randy, I said, uh, did you see that guy walking up to us? He's like, did you notice he spoke perfect English? Okay, very helpful. But that was weird, Okay. I, I, later, Randy and I would reflect on that and say, you know what? We prayed before we went that God would protect us in whatever means he needed to because of our arrogance. Thought we could go wherever we want to. And I don't know if that was an angel, but I know this. It was helpful. And I believe it was God sent. He was just, what is it? He, he's just, he's protecting us. But we need to cooperate with him as he does that. And that guy said, it'd be better for you to go back inside. You should not be out here. We were like, okay, we could have been stupid and foolish and ignored him. We, in this battle with sin, cooperate with God. He sends forth ministering spirits. First John chapter 4 and verse 4 says, You belong to God, little children, and greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. What's the promise? The promise is that in the midst of the battles and struggles of the Christian life, he that is in you, the indwelling presence of God through his spirit, is greater, which means He enables you to live in a life-conquering way. But that conquering is not something I sit back and say, I did that. No, it's, God, I, before you, I couldn't do that. 
But when I rested in your spirit, I was able to have victory over that temptation, whatever that particular area is in your life. We cooperate with God because He sends angelic help, which sounds weird, but He also sends His indwelling spirit, which is His sweet personal presence. Hebrews 2.18, because He Himself suffered when He was tempted, He is able to come to the aid of you when you are tempted. Folks, that is powerful. That is rich. Because He allowed Himself to be tempted, He knows exactly what you need in the face of your temptation. It is a cooperative effort. He comes alongside. When I fall, I cannot blame Satan. What's the phrase people say? The devil made me do it, right? I think many of us as Christians tend to live with that as our default mode. Because we've tried and we can't. Well, yeah, that's, that's the point. By the power of the Spirit of God, through His indwelling presence, by the angelic assistance that He sends along. And that look, that's what Jesus in His flesh needed on at least two occasions, and I'm going to guess there were more, two occasions listed in Scripture, He receives divine assistance in His flesh so that He can handle the trial that is before Him without failing, without falling to the call to evil. And I would assume that if Jesus needed that, then I desperately do. No temptation that you face is inherently stronger than the resources that you have in Jesus Christ. Which leads me to the second thought. Conquering is a cooperative effort. Secondly, it is this. Conquering is, and please folks, hear me. Conquering is a choice that I make. But, don't go away saying, oh, conquering is a choice. Therefore, if I just simply, when I face temptation, make a choice... Okay, then then I'll be fine. No, remember the first point. Okay, my flesh is inclined to choose sin. The Spirit of God inside is saying, Tim, not that, this. Make this choice. He is prompting the way. He is showing, revealing, illuminating the way out of the temptation. When you are tempted, He will make a way of escape. But you must choose that way of escape. You must choose to walk away from that TV program. You must choose to walk out of that movie theater. You must choose to walk out of that eatery where you're being tempted. He's pointing the way and His Spirit is prompting and begging you to conquer for the glory of God. He wants you to know and to experience that there is no temptation that comes over you that is unconquerable. He points the way, but you and I need to make a choice when that situation arises. A God-given way of escape, this is the promise, a God-given way of escape is always present for His child. Is that awesome? As parents, you raise your kids and they hit that age where they think they need to go out and hang with their friends like you do. And you're thinking, that's weird. Just stay with us. Okay? It's safer when they're with you, right? And you say to them, well, look, when you're out, if you ever get in a situation... And, and they just sit there with bated breath waiting for you to talk to them and teach them, right? Oh, please, Dad, could you, could you talk to me longer about this? What are you, you know what you're doing? You're saying to them, if you get a spot where you know you don't belong there, you call me. You call me, and I will come, and I will get you out of that situation. Now, a couple weeks ago, my daughter Rebecca's car broke down at the hospital. Actually, the alarm was just going off. And I'm thinking God is probably using that to humble her. Okay, She didn't see it that way. 
she called me. I was in a situation where I couldn't go and help her. I was just in a spot where I couldn't go and help my girl. I'll tell you something. That didn't feel good. Knowing that some AAA guy is going over there to tow my daughter's car and then drop her off at her apartment. I didn't like that. You know what I wanted to do? I wanted to provide a way out. I wanted to go and say, look, I'll drop you off and I'll go back and I'll take care of that problem. God is faithful. That's what the text says, right? He knows how to provide a way out. He has the capacity to do and to make a way out for you. He understands completely. I have a limited capacity. My daughter called me in a time of need. I couldn't meet that need. I didn't like that. That will never happen with God. You know what he says? Call upon me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not even understand or comprehend. Folks, do you, do you grab that way out? That promise, that the heart of God who is faithful, He can fulfill His promises. As parents, we make all kinds of promises to build confidence in our kids that we can't keep. We can't keep them, but God can. Conquering is a choice. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. People like me have it all the time because I'm usually going too fast and in too many directions at the same time. You walk into the front of ShopRite. Somebody's walking towards you, and you do that. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? They're walking straight at you, and you kind of, you kind of duke them like you're going, and you're like, right into each other. Why? Nobody made a choice. Uh, Nevit Duvenak, uh, Barbara's dad, husband. I mean, sorry, don't, don't, <laughs> he really won't like me. Uh, he was telling me, I, I, was, I was sharing with him that about decision making, how sometimes we get caught in this ambivalence. We don't declare a clear way and then we have, bam, run right into each other. He told me this story. He said, I have a friend who was going into a grocery store, like a Wegmans kind of thing where, you know, everybody has their hair perfect and, you know, a little more upscale. He said, my friend was walking in and this lady was coming out. He said, this happened to be a very attractive lady. This is probably my wife. He was walking out and he, he said, I kind of did that with her. And then, you know, have you ever had it happen like two or three times in a row? You're like, ah, okay, you want go, go. He said, he said, he did it three times and he looked at the lady and said, man, I can only do this one more time and then I got to go. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we come to face temptation and you know what we do? We fail to make a decisive choice. We're stutter stepping with Satan and wondering why we are so prone to fall. Why we wrestle so hard? Why failure seems inevitable? We're not making a definitive choice to choose the way that God provides. Ambivalence, indecision is in the Christian life deadly to your spiritual success. He's made a way that you can choose, a way of escape so that you can get through this successfully for His glory. But then there's this danger, isn't there? You face your biggie, whatever your biggie is. A friend calls on the phone and wants to talk about someone else. And you say no. And you hang up and you feel good because you did the right thing. You did the right thing. You feel so good that you forget that Christian living is not a choice. It's a series of choices. Okay, successful Christian living doesn't happen because I made a choice somewhere in my past. It happens because every day, Paul said, every day I die daily. First Corinthians 9, just think back with me a few verses. 9, 28, he says, I beat my body. How often, Paul? 
Well, like an athlete does in training, in preparation for an athletic event, the event is Christian living. Paul says, for that event, I beat my body and I make it my slave. I deal a death blow to the passions of my flesh so that when I face temptation, I have cultivated a mindset or an attitude that is able to look at sin and say, by the grace of God, show me a way out. And when you show me, I will choose that way. I'll turn off the TV. I'll get rid of the bottle. I won't eat that last piece of chocolate. God, help me. Okay. Right, it, it, no, He will make a way. You have to make a choice. He didn't, he's not going to make you a robot. He wants you to choose that for His glory and out of love for Him. That's what He wants. And the joy-filled Christian life is this. Facing temptation, which everybody faces, saying no to sin, yes to righteousness. And what's fascinating is this. The more you make that choice, okay, and I find this, the more I, in terms of physical exercise, choose to jog more consistently, I become more willing to be consistent. Here's what Paul says in Romans 6. He says, whatever you yield yourself to, you become a servant to obey. And we always think that means addiction to sin. That is not the only direction Paul goes. He says you can also become a slave to righteousness. Oh, would you love to be so close to God because of the choices that you're making consistently that when something comes up, you are inclined to make the righteous choice. Think about that. What a place in the Christian life to be where choosing righteousness because the Spirit of God has such total control of your life that that becomes the, it becomes the normal experience. Not to the point where I don't need grace, but to the point where I have been fighting against that sin so much that it's getting a little bit easier. It's less of a battle. It's becoming more instinctive. I feel inclined towards righteousness instead of being dreadfully inclined towards sin. That's the direction Paul's saying here. Beat your body so that it chooses that discipline. Because in that discipline is this God-glorifying life. If I lay off and running for a week, you know what? I dread the next time I have to go. I dread it. I know I need it, but I dread that next decision. And I'll tell you what, here's what happens. The longer it goes, you know, when the two weeks, the three weeks, and all of a sudden you're looking at two months, I don't know if I ever want to run again. I know it's valuable. I know it helps me. I know it gives me more energy, makes my mind a little clearer. You guys don't notice that, but I do. I, it's, once, you, once you slack off, you start falling into the sin, I'm going to tell you what, you're going to have to go through a war to get out of it, but it is worth it. God gives us choices. Sin is conquerable if we cooperate with Him in making the choices that are appropriate to the circumstances that He gives us. But this conquering that is possible in Jesus requires continual effort. And that brings me to the last thought this morning. It's a cooperative effort. It's a choice that is continual and it requires continual effort or vigilance. And I just want to mention to you four areas this list could go on. But there are, I think, four basic areas where we need to train ourselves in righteousness. Number one is this. Trust God's plan in your life. Trust Him. When you are tempted, I can guarantee you that the, the and especially when you're in a time of trial, your greatest temptation is going to be this. To doubt what? What's going to be? When you're tempted, you're going through a difficult test, what is your greatest temptation? To doubt the goodness of God. That is deadly. That's why Paul said earlier, God is faithful. He will not let you experience something that you can't handle. 
and he will always make a way out. But the way out, choosing the way out, requires this continual discipline of your heart before God to cultivate a desire for righteousness. Tim, how do I desire or cultivate a desire for righteousness? Trust God's plan all the time. Because he, we know that he allows plans and manages all of our circumstances for his good, for our good. I want you to turn back to Matthew 26, and, and you can just stay there this morning. Turn back to Matthew 26. I, I want to show you how the Savior did what he tells us to do. Okay, how the Savior did what he tells us to do. Matthew chapter 26. I want to show you how Jesus trusted his Father's plan. He is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is the eve of his crucifixion. We call this the beginning of his passion, of the outpouring of his life for the glory of his Father. This for him was the most difficult experience of his physical, earthly existence. To his disciples, he says in verse 38, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Okay, folks, listen. That's the Savior. That's the Savior. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. To the point where I want to throw in a towel. And more people have been there that want to admit it. And the question is, how did the Savior respond when He was overwhelmed to the point of death with this plan of God? Of His Father? Verse 38 or verse 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. What is Jesus expressing? He's expressing a personal struggle with the plan of his Father. It is causing him, you go into some of the Greek words, to literally shudder, and the words that, that we use today in psychology, we talk about personal disintegration. Now you, you may find me sacrilegious to say this, but emotionally in his human side, Christ was wrestling with the ramifications of his Father's will. Could he do it? Can I make it? I have overwhelmed to the point like, or I feel like I am going to collapse and not make it. What's the way out? Notice what he says. He says, Yet not what I want, but what you want. Not my will, but your will. What is he doing? He's saying, God, Father, I trust your plan, even though it is leading me to a point of personal, physical disintegration emotionally. Why? He was anticipating the cross. He knew Psalm 22. He knew Isaiah 53. He knew Isaiah 52, 13. Disfigured beyond recognition. That was his lot. That was God's plan. And only trust in the plan of Father pulled the Savior by the power of God through that gauntlet of struggle. He faced the test. And folks, I want you to understand something. He passed the test. That's why the book of Hebrews says he is the author and perfecter of our faith. He did everything perfectly. That was the will of his Father. And because he did that, he knows how to take care of you. You may look to him and say, Lord, do you know what you're doing? And he's okay with that question. Don't accuse. Don't accuse. He knows what he's doing. Every parent in this room has had to say to their child, trust me. 
Trust me. I have your best interest at heart. I have your best interest at heart. Father to the Son, this is to me a powerful place in Scripture in light of no temptation, but such as is common. God will make a way out so that you can bear it. Why should you trust Him? Because if you doubt God's character, if you doubt His goodness, you will justify any behavior. You can make any choice seem right because you can just point a finger at God. Folks, I can't tell you how many times I have, I am sure in my life I have done that with God. I say, God, this is, I don't think you know what you're doing. I don't think you know what you're doing. You won't let this happen. This will be different. You won't let this trial rise. The Savior faced the same kind of circumstances and successfully passed through them for the glory of the Father. Someone here this morning, perhaps in a difficult marital situation, what you want is out, but you don't have permission from God. The question remains, will you trust Him? You're here this morning as a single person awaiting God's provision for the right mate. A nice unbeliever comes along. Here's the question. Will you trust God? Will you trust God? to make a way out and to provide to meet that need. You have a burden to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone at work. Silence preserves the relationship, but they need to know the truth. God has a plan. His plan is that we go into the world and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The question is, will you trust Him? It takes me back to a fascinating verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't create your own way out. Trust in the Lord and He will what? He'll make your paths straight. Now folks, I'm going to be honest with you, what I think that is, I think that's an echo. Going to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Trust Him, He'll make a way. He's reliable, He's faithful. It's what Jesus had to wrestle with. Trials and our opportunity for you to express trust in God or for you to express disbelief in the goodness of God. One is a solicitation to evil. One is a test that will prove the character of God and His glory and His faithfulness in your life. And I can tell you which one will make you happy if you know God personally. Cultivate a trust in God's plan. Second, pray for God's help. Folks, look. Look with me at this passage of Scripture. Look with me particularly at verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. Go down to verse 40. Is that 41? Forgive me, my eyes are fading and the lights are dimmer. Here's what Jesus said to Peter. Peter, watch and pray. If I was Peter, I'd be, Lord, why? Why? Why be on the alert and pray fervently? Why? And what does he say? He says, so that you will not fall into temptation. What is he saying? Peter, if you pray for the strength of God and you pray in faith believing that God's going to provide a way, He's going to do that for you. He's going to do that for you, Peter. Watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation so that this testing time does not become a solicitation to evil. Don't let Satan take the God-ordained setting and cause it to be a time where you doubt the goodness of God, miss the plan of God, and are solicited into evil by the evil one. That's what Jesus is saying. Watch and pray that you don't fall into a solicitation to evil in this God-ordained moment. Jesus knew what He was talking about. He knew the temptation. Father, is there any way 
that I don't have to go through this. Father's no answer to that question, Jesus. You know, the, you know my will. You know the plan. Folks, if we're going to succeed in the trials, we must learn to pray so that the test does not lead us into sin. And in 1 Corinthians 10, I fall back to verse 12. Let him that thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall, for no temptation is taken. Did you see the connection? You know what prayer is? Prayer is the expression, ultimate expression of humility. If I am prayerless, I'm proud. If I live my Christian life in the power of my flesh and am not prayerful, I am proud. And I can guarantee you this, the less prayer, the more sin. The more prayer, the more victory. <clears throat> Heed the warning of the Savior. Watch and pray so that you don't fall to the temptations that are inevitable. So that the test does not become a solicitation to your distrusting God. Third, read the Word of God. Read the Word of God. Verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10. What's it say? These are written for our examples upon whom the end of the ages have come and they are written as warnings for us. So, if I'm going to battle temptation, fight it, what do I have to do? Trust God. Pray fervently and regularly and get time in reading the Word of God so that you can heed it, meditate on it, learn from it. Jesus in the temptation, Matthew chapter 4. So, painfully apparent, isn't it? In all three temptations, what does he say to Satan? Satan, it is written. It is written. It is written. Okay, in other words, what is he doing? He's throwing out God's plan. He's throwing out God's will, God's purpose. He's fighting temptation with the Word of God. Is it any wonder then that in Ephesians chapter 6, we are told by God, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of truth. With it, you can slay the evil one. The Word of God. Then I think what Jesus says in His high priestly prayer, John 17, Eve of His crucifixion. John 17, 17. For the disciples, Father, sanctify them by Your truth. Your Word is truth. Set them apart. Make them distinct by Your will, by Your decree revealed in Your Word. Your Word is truth. Do you start to see the connection here? You want to fight temptation? Take the Word of God. Jesus prayed Scripture into your life so that you could stand. Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy Word. If I don't know the Word of God, if I don't meditate on the Word, if I don't memorize the Word of God, it's not there at the ready to help me to fight in the temptation. And the last thought I give you this morning, which we've already been trying to do, is focus on Jesus. Do you want to conquer sin? Focus and concentrate on Jesus Christ. Conquering is possible when we choose to trust, to pray, to read, to focus on Christ because He is indeed the author and perfecter of our faith. Paul's view of the Christian life, I believe, is decidedly optimistic. In Philippians 4 and verse 13, here's what he concludes. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can face any trial. I can face any circumstance if I trust in the one who has given himself for me. When we are decidedly pessimistic, we end up making bad choices. When we are optimistic, trusting in God, we can make choices that will lead us to victory in the Christian life. 
And so this morning I close with bad news. Apart from Jesus Christ, failure for us is predictable and inevitable. Okay? Apart from Christ, failure will be the normal mode and operation of my life. But the good news is this. That failure that you and I experience is not final. The wages of our sin is death. But the free gift of Father is eternal life that is found in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I think it's interesting that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus would say this. He says, lead us not into temptation. What is he praying for? He's praying for protection. That Father, in the midst of all the circumstances, would be there. He wants us to rest in Him. He wants us to trust in Him and to live for His glory. Folks, I hope that we, as a church, can take this verse, commit it to memory, and start to live it for the glory of God and build within this church a decidedly optimistic perspective about sin that we first learn personally and that we then pass on to our kids, that we then, in the context of discipleship groups, begin to pass on to each other. That there is hope to live this life for the glory of God. Failure is not inevitable. It is possible. It is likely in the flesh. It is not inevitable if we walk in the Spirit. God, by His grace, has made a way for success. In circumstances that are good and circumstances that are bad. In the end, I think of Job. Job faced a circumstance where he could choose to distrust the goodness of God because he went through what many of us say was hell on earth. He was tempted to blame God. As people said, just doubt the goodness of God. What does Job say? Though he slay me, I will trust him. Because he's going to make a way to get through this for his honor and for his glory. Let's bow our heads together this morning. Father.